Thank you for joining us on our journey here to preserve the history of mixed martial arts. When I wanted to take on this project, I needed help. I brought in one of my favorite matchmakers, Miguel Iterate, and the MMA detective, Mike Davis. So to do this, we've been able to preserve history. Welcome and enjoy. Hey, welcome back to the Lights Out podcast. I am Miguel Iterate. I am joined by the MMA detective, and we are off on another one of our deep dives as everybody uh, is getting to know us for it. And uh, we thank everybody for the like and the supports and the subscriptions and stuff. But uh, we're back here for another deep dive without Chris, but we're in heady territory again. Mike, what do we got in store? Something special, okay. I think. So we like pioneers. I mean, you've heard us do Mark Coleman. You've heard us do Tara LaRosa, um, Shoni Carter, Bas Rutten. There's a woman from the Netherlands named Marlos Conan that at one time was ranked number one in the world and she cut, although she was based out of the Netherlands, she cut her teeth in Japan. And I'm going to tell you guys something. I hope that you haven't heard of her, even though she's doing commentary for Invicta. I hope you don't know much about her MMA career because it's incredibly fascinating in a male dominated sport. And especially like the Netherlands where, I mean, it was like, like Peaky Blinders on Netflix. That's what the MMA scene was in the Netherlands when she was cutting her teeth. And that's not me like exaggerating. It's not me stretching the truth. That's actually reality. And we're absolutely going to address that with her. Prior to that though, Miguel, I got to say, there's a woman that's no longer with us named Marianne Giordani. And she was not only a big Marlos Conan fan, she also served for, with our military. She was in the special forces with the United States army her group had a poster of Marlos Conan on their wall as a sign of inspiration. And I'm going to be honest with you, like all you, I, and Chris, anything with anybody that serves our country, it, we, we got a soft spot for. So all the little research and attention to details that we did was done. So with the fact that we were thinking, although she's no longer, this woman is no longer with us. She'd be proud of what it is we're putting forward. So this, 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 is, this is for her, man. Absolutely. Anyway, Marlos Conan is an MMA pioneer that everybody needs to know about. And I, I think we're going to accomplish that in this. And we just kind of we just gotta break through a little bit. But once the, you know, the, the water starts coming through the dam, it's just, it's just going to flow. I'm sure of it. Yeah, I'm pumped up for it. I know her. Uh, she competed in the Abu Dhabis. And uh, the other thing for the historians out there, keep in mind, and we got a little taste of this with Art Davey, but you got to keep in mind, the early days of MMA, Holland was a bastion because you didn't have Britain and you didn't have Scandinavia and those countries. It, you know, the UFC, the early UFCs went to Holland to get fighters. And again, very male-driven for a woman to succeed from back in those days is simply going to be an amazing story in my book, whatever it is. Well, well, let's also think there was a mafia war to control mixed martial arts in, you know, in, in the Netherlands at this time as well. Like when she was doing her thing, people were getting killed behind gyms. Cars were getting blown up. Guys were getting the cars blown up living and then killing the people that they thought did it. And these are all the people should be walking into these gyms. And, you know, this isn't like a street corner on the south side of Chicago. You know, like you're ducking and hiding, walking in and out of a gym because you don't know what kind of nefarious activity 
the person that owns the place had done. And, you know, although, I mean, I think she just kind of, you know, brushed past those people. We're going to get some stories out of her in regards to that. That I'm sure of. On top of going through her incredible career. And here we go, Marlos Conan. Hey, Miguel Arati, back here on the Lights Out podcast. Chris Lytle is on the road, but I'm joined by the MMA detective, Mike Davis. And uh, we're off on another deep dive interview. We have a classic, one of the pioneers of women's MMA has uh, joined us, Merlos Conan, all the way from Amsterdam in Holland. And uh, Mike, definitely, uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Merlos, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. Uh, my three-year-old is just in bed, so I'm good to go. Thank you. Good. Thank you. So, Mar- Marlos, one of the fascinating things about going through your career is your grit, understanding of the sport, ability to stay calm is like it's something that should be studied. Where does that where does that come from? Well, to be honest, I was shitting my pants all the time, so I don't know. <laughs> so, so just so the people at home can understand just what kind of bravery that Marlowe's showed in her fights, there's an Army Special Forces unit called the, it's called the Myrmidons. It's like a, uh, a Greek name. They have your poster hanging up in order to, as an example, of showing hey, courage and bravery. Really? Yes. Nah. Oh, wow. Yes. Wow. And in this interview, we are going to show exactly how these Army Special Forces people came to putting her poster up on a wall. Please so read, uh, the name after this interview, I'm going to Google them. Yes. <laughs> it's mind-blowing. <laughs> so we, we do a little social media in regards to who's coming up next. And a person from that unit contacted us, let us know, big fan of hers. In fact, such a big fan. This is what we did. It's funny because um, when I, here in the Netherlands, they don't understand MMA for a bit. So when I have to talk to the mainstream media, they always give me the same uh, questions. And then I'm trying to, and they always try to make me like I'm this amazing woman and blah, blah, blah. And um, because I was in the cage and I'm trying to explain that what I did, I was an athlete. You know, you know what, what, you, what can happen if you step into the cage? If you tap out, it's over. I know it, it, may, it feels like you're going to war, but you actually, you're not going to war. And then I'm always talking about my, uh, my late grandmother and grandfather. They were on about Yad Vashem for what they did in World War II. And also military people or like police people. I mean, there are people that really put their lives on the line to serve uh, for greater good. So it's funny that they do that because in my opinion, they are the true heroes of our society. You know, not only do I agree with you, but when our heroes put somebody's picture on the wall. Yeah, they're like, what? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It it means a lot to us as well. Yeah. Yeah. So... Let's start with your first fight. Like you've got a very interesting career based on the fact you're from the Netherlands. Obviously we've established that. And the majority of your career is actually taking place in Japan. The first fight that I have on record listed is the ladies legends pro wrestling in Tokyo against Yuki Kondo. Was that your first fight or did you have anything prior to that? 
Uh, well, it was my first fight in Japan, but prior to that, I had two amateur fights in Shuto, which was okay. a Japanese organization, but they organized in, uh, in the Netherlands. Okay, were those amateur fights or professional? No, amateur. Okay, would but you mind? I, I couldn't find anything on that. Like, I. No, I don't think it's, it's not recorded at all. The, the I, second, for sure not. The first, maybe, but I haven't never seen it back. Would but, you uh, mind taking us through both of those fights so we can, you know, make a historical uh, notation yeah, regards to what took place? It was actually in a dojo next to my uh, high school. And um, I remember because I had to go, yeah, really, I had to go to uh, school uh, on a bike every day. That's why I started out with, I wanted to learn how to defend myself. Prior to that, I was only doing tennis and volleyball. And from self-defense, it went to cage fighting, MMA. And I remember that I was on the bike to the fight and I could hardly uh, get the uh, pedals. I couldn't. Yes. <laughs> it was a long day, I can tell you. My three-year-old was quite demanding. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, my legs are so heavy. This is weird because I was doing it every day and normally it wasn't a problem, but it was all fear in my legs, of course. Uh, to cut a long story short, she came all the way from Rotterdam. So my hair was like, oh my God, it's a big city. And I was a small town girl. And she also had, I remember she had um, a, a short on black with uh, yellow stars. Wow, that made an impression on me because I was standing up probably, I don't know, in my Nike uh, legging or whatever. <laughs> and I remember that uh, we had to touch glove and I went back into my corner and I thought to myself, okay, now she's going to beat me up. And then within a minute, I had broken her nose and her arm. And Jan Lohmulder, he's a, a pioneer, also fought in, uh, in Japan. He was a kickboxer, but he also fought in, oh gosh, it's, it's a Brazilian name from, from a Japanese organization. Rings? Nope. Nah, anyway, uh, okay. fought in Japan. That's what he did. Oh, okay. And um, he was there in Japan and they asked him for a replacement fighter because somebody, uh, uh, and it was for the Yuki Kondo fight. And he said, well, I, I know this girl and he had, had seen me fight. And then my second amateur fight was to go to a place in the Netherlands. I don't know much about it anymore. I think I went on an armbar or something. And then I had just started a university in Rotterdam. <laughs> and then I got right. called. But there was no, uh, you know, the internet wasn't that, developed you had the nokia i don't know if you had it in america as well the 3310 you know you play snake on it you know that one <laughs> and um i went on um on a friday back to my parents in the east of the netherlands and my mom was waiting for me in the garden and she said oh lucy lucy it means small marlus you can fight in japan but we do not know if you can make it because the travel agencies were close at five o'clock because it, it was weekend and you couldn't go online and get a ticket so I, uh, I went to the inside and I was waiting for, uh, for the phone to ring. And then I took up and then it was my uh, girlfriend of my trainer. And she's the only thing she said, well, do you want to fight in Japan? Yes or no? And I said, ah, yes. And I hung up. And she said, because we need to know, otherwise we cannot book, they cannot book the ticket. So I didn't know anything. I didn't know who was fighting, what the rules <laughs> were. Muddy, didn't think about that, you know, nothing. And then uh, I arrived uh, at the airport, at Schiphol Airport, and Gerrit Cordeaux was there, uh, Bob Schreiber, um, and his wife. Dirty Bob. Yeah, Irma. 
and they were like heroes to me, but I also, would, also was a bit scared of them because I was a very, you know, like I was 19 years old and I came from this very uh, middle-class family. My father was a teacher, you know, that, that was my background. <laughs> and then in the Netherlands, we swear with, we don't say, ah, oh, fuck your mother or whatever. We, we swear with diseases. So I will not repeat it, but there's a word that if you use that disease, it means that's not good. And, and uh, Gerard, I remember, said it like in every sentence. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And he said all, also other stuff. And Bob and Irma, they were consuming one bottle of uh, port in the, in, the, in the plane. So, you know, that, 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 that was like uh, who, <laughs> who I was dealing with. But uh, Gerard, uh, yeah, on the Did way- Did you connect this fight? Did, did Bob Schreiber help you get this fight? No, no, no. That was Jan Lohmulder. But okay. Irma had to fight as well. Okay. And, and Gerard Cardot had a few girls fighting from his dojo. Okay. So that was the crew I was traveling with. And my trainer was already in Japan. So I was by myself. So it was like, I was between all those people like, oh, what is this? Mm-hmm. And, um, but Gerard was actually very sweet. Uh, he showed, he toured us all the way uh, through Tokyo and he was, he, he is his, you know, um, big mouth, but it's small heart as we say in the Netherlands. So he was taking care of us like, yeah, it's Dutch, I don't know, um, like a father. It was really sweet. And then um, uh, I remember that you have, when you're in Japan and you're fighting there, everything's very strict. So I was in the, um, I had to do the walkout, but it was for Choreocraft? No, yes. <laughs> and um, so I had to get on the catwalk and then I had to walk uh, apart and then I had to stand still and I had to look look a certain way and then I could walk further to the to the ring. And I remember by me that I was I walked in and stood still and it was all black around me and I felt the, the light on my face and I thought by myself, okay, well then fuck it, then you will. You will break every bone in your body, but you you came all this way. Now you have to do this. And um, <laughs> and the thing was, I, I I I punched her in the face, and she dropped down. And then I start swearing, but I start and I never swear. So when I was that age, so but and my trainer <laughs> later How on. How things have changed. Mm-hmm. It was Gerard, yeah, also that, but it was also Gerard Cadeau. So I was swearing his his words, and he was like, you fucking oh, what she was on the floor. <laughs> yeah, that was my first. Uh... So let, let's kind of frame this. So Yuki Kondo, Y U U K I Kondo, named after uh, the Japanese legend, mixed martial artist. Um, she's from Purebreed Kyoto, which is a legendary gym in Japan. When you arrived and you saw who you were fighting or you were informed of it? No. Did you? Oh, so you found out when you were going to the ring? I didn't know who she was. I had no idea. I didn't know who Anthony knew he was either. No idea. Oh, so you... <laughs> I, I remember that when we, we, had, we made contact, I was like, oh, she's really strong. Later on, I found out she had uh, been on Olympic level judo. Yes. <laughs> yes. I didn't know. Yeah, I was crazy back then. Well, for instance, afterward, when you found that out, would it have been better to know that before the fight or were you happy to find out afterward? I was shitting my pants. It didn't matter. I was, <laughs> it didn't matter. Either way. <laughs> yeah. But let um, me ask I, you, now, if, 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 I could, if I could ask a couple of questions. So you get to Japan and obviously you're very young. 
and you know Bob Shriver's there. You realize there's a whole fight, but you did do shooto back in in Holland, and yeah. you know arm bars and stuff. Who was teaching you like technique and stuff? Is that Martin Young? Yeah, I learned all my uh, in that time. I learned everything from him. I wasn't so, training with uh, Lucien Carbin yet. Okay, talk a little bit about Martin because I think he's also the person that would have been. Shudo Holland behind, you know, the yeah. man behind Shudo Holland. So talk a little bit about him and in, in, in his position there and his how he helped you. Well, I um, I wanted to do kickboxing, but my mom didn't let me because it was too far away. Well, actually, it was the dojo where I had my first Shudo fight, but she just didn't want to let me do kickboxing. So then my brother brought me to a karate class. But it was only karas. I was like, if somebody pulls me off the bike, this will not work. And after that class, I saw two guys putting down uh, mats. And they were wearing geese. And I was like, oh, what's going on there? And they were rolling over each other. And I remember that. I, was, I felt so awkward to me. I was like, oh, what, is, what are they doing? Two men on top of each other? Wow. You know, the <laughs> connection I, was nothing. I wasn't used to that. But I did know like, okay, if someone pulls me off the bike when I'm going to school, this is what I need to learn. So that's how I started training with Martijn and um, he was um, doing also MMA. So when he was fighting in the Netherlands, the whole crew went. So that's how, how I saw that how, um, uh, how it was, you know, the, the scene, what MMA was. I even saw Irma fighting, I think once. And um, he, to me, was a big brother. And uh, now, you know, we were fighting in, I was fighting in ADCC as well. And then he went and et cetera. So all, most of my fights, he was in my corner. Okay. So, okay. We usually kind of wait till we start mm-hmm. dipping our toes <laughs> into deep waters. But, you know, we're, we're, we're conversating now. And, I've, and you mentioned right. Bob Schreiber. Yes, you mentioned mm-hmm. Bob Schreiber. And right, right there, you completely derailed me. I'm a huge <laughs> I'm a huge Bob Schreiber fan. <laughs> he's such a sweet guy. Really. He really is. Uh, and he's okay. Well, here, you preface, he's such a sweet guy. And for the people that are listening that might not know him, there isn't a human being alive that has had more point deductions in fights <laughs> than Dirty Bob Schreiber. <laughs> ever. You might be able to add all of Gilbert Evel. And several other people's point deductions yeah, together, no. and they will not add Bob, what Bob <laughs> Schreiber has accomplished in regards to point deductions. Can we agree on that? Uh, probably, yeah. But you know, the thing is, uh, he, he comes from a very, very hardcore background. And um, uh, we, I did a podcast uh, here in the Netherlands, and we interviewed him as well. And then it was the first time for me that he spoke about it. And um, his upbringing was not good at all at all like think of something bad and then you know amp it up 100 percent really he comes from a really bad background so to see where he comes from what he has built up and the person he is today props really yeah he's he's an interesting character we had boss rooten on and boss rooten said he's a he's a good fighter but that Bob Schreiber was the best street fighter that he could ever imagine. That, that's yeah, what... yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, 100%. And if Bas Rutten says something like that, then you know it's true. Yeah, it is a very interesting situation because 
And, you know, we only saw him like in the big shows, but when he was a presence in Holland, I imagine that everybody respected him, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and you mentioned Irma, his wife, and Mike will be back here in a minute. His wife also fought on some of these shows, early shows with you. Remember Erin Torhill? Yes. Well, she fought Erin Torhill in uh, Aruba. In uh, It's in the middle of uh, in the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I know. Very bloody so, fight. Did, um, did Irma and you ever train together? No, no, never. But okay. she was in the west of the Netherlands and I was in the east. So just to kind of put in a, a proper context of who Bob Schreiber is, one, every almost everybody that he grew up with in a mixed martial arts scene is dead. They've died <laughs> something tragic, horrific. <laughs> <laughs> or they're in prison for a long time. He oh. also would no-show fights that he was in, not because he was being irresponsible, but because on the way to the venue, he got into a street fight. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> so, I mean, that kind of tells you, like, Bob Schreiber, he's also, like, the, when the marijuana bars started becoming popular in Holland, Kana. he was the... Like the marijuana, the drug bars. He, yeah, no, Kana. That was on his shirt always. The bulldog, yes. No, no, C-A-N-N-A. -N -N -A. The I bulldog guy, had... everybody that knows that, but he always had Kana on his, uh, on his chest. Yeah. He was the original bouncer kind of fending off the local authorities. So it kind of told you that he, he was somebody that people feared, not just on the street, but also you know, politically speaking. So no, I, I've got a ton of a world of respect for Bob. And I think a, if a life story needs to be put on Netflix, mm -hmm. he absolutely qualifies. You know that he actually is a really good actor in the Netherlands. He's often asked uh, as an actor. Oh, that's Most awesome. of the time he's a bad guy, but he's good at it as well. We've tried to get him on here and he can't figure Zoom out. So it's, <laughs> we've done all the research. We're ready to go, and <laughs> he doesn't know how to do Zoom. So it is one of this. So Yuki Kondo, that's November twenty second, two thousand, and you made such an impression in Japan with how you handled yourself, probably pretty low maintenance, that they put you in a, an eight man or eight woman tournament, December fifth, two thousand, the Remix World Cup, and it was also a Shudo rules. Um, it's a very interesting tournament on the surface level. And um, you had, it, you kind of showed some heroics in that tournament. Why don't you talk to us how like you agreed to get into it? And then we're going to go match by match. Uh, well, actually uh, I declined in the first place because I came back from Japan and that ex first time and that experience was so overwhelming that when I came home, I was sick. And then I got the call like, hey, do you want to be a replacement fighter again uh, for this tournament? And when I was the first time in Japan, they were talking about it and Irma wanted to fight in it. And uh, so I knew it was a big thing that was being organized, but I never, it never crossed my mind that they would ask me. And um, so I said no. And then my trainer, he, uh, uh, well, he talked to me and he persuaded me and I said, okay, let's give it a try. But uh, I was even it's... crying on the day before I left. I was so tired. I was like, oh, I'm so tired and sick. And uh, that's how I get on the plane, got on the plane. 
And um, I had no idea what I had signed up to. No idea. I mean, I saw Gunarenko the two or one day before that. And I saw Becky. And Becky Leva was the only fighter I didn't saw. And I saw all these big women. And it was like, it was like mind blowing. Okay. So in essence, Becky Levi is a, a bigger woman, as we have described. And She's also regarded as the number one ranked woman in the world. And I think it's just by sheer size and just ferocity. She's Dan Severn's trainer, Don Fry's trainer, uh, Scott Ferrozo used her as a trainer. So we're looking at like alpha males here in the United States going, and you know, these are rough guys too. Like, you know, like I know in this world of political correctness, at that time, I don't think that they had caught up to that and they respected her. So that's like how feared Becky Levi was. And on the other side of the ring and the other side of the tournament, in true Japanese fashion, like yeah. <laughs> Japan loves like a circus and a freak show. And you already know what's coming. Yeah. Um, they have a Russian woman that's six foot three and 330 pounds named Zvet, Zvelana Gondarenko, Gondarenko, and she actually has got a win over Aaron Tohill in the first round. So, yeah, and they, they said she was also a rich, uh, uh, Russian champion of vodka slamming. Oh, I, I, listen, a, a woman that's 63, 330 pounds, I don't <laughs> doubt any of that. So your first round opponent, and like you said, you're, you're very scared up until this point, is Mika Harigari from from a famous gym, Fight Chicks, and it's your first round opponent. Why don't you walk us through that? Actually, I don't know much about it anymore. It was more like everybody was talking about this one woman that would probably uh, win the tournament. That was Becky Levi. And I was shooting my pants so hard that I, I, what I'm telling you now is from what the, the footage that I have seen afterwards is that I, I, I think I knocked her down and then I was like, oh, she's already on the ground. Well, let's do a renake choke. And that was it. And then the thing is, if you're fighting tournaments, when the first fight is over, all the stress is gone. But then I had to fight Becky. So I was in the catacomben uh, backstage of the venue. I don't know how you call that. The locker yeah. room. No, yeah, but what the locker rooms are, that corridor, I don't know. Okay, okay. The warm up below the back area, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and I was walking towards the catwalk and then I, I felt something, someone was staring at me and it was above me. And that was the first time that I saw Becky Levi and she was looking at me and she was dressed in black. And the only thing that I remember was that I was so scared that I blocked it. She looked at me and I was like, hell no. And then I just forgot about everything. <laughs> it was like the mountain from Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah beyond, That's who you're fighting. It like, like, it was so scared that I blocked it. I wasn't even well, scared. Anymore. It was gone out of my mind. You also, she also had Dan Severn in her corner, which obviously everybody knows who he is, especially at that time. And I mean, you're cornered by Golden Glory. Did you switch gyms at this point or did you? No. Okay. No, no, no. My trainer went to Golden Glory and therefore, yeah, okay. I was wearing the suit. I wasn't with the Golden Glory back then. Okay. I, I thought I, I noticed people wearing Golden Glory shirts in your corner. Not true. 
through. So they probably yeah, helped out corner. Yeah. Okay. So Becky Levi, like you employed like a really interesting um, like strategy. You were backing up and Becky Levi wasn't cutting off the ring. So you were just kind of timing her steps, timing her steps. And the one time no. that <laughs> Becky connects, you see the look on Marlo's face going, I mean, it's, it's like, holy shit, that was hard. Uh, I was running for my life. You can also see me oh. running. <laughs> so it wasn't strategy. It was survival. Is that what you're and saying? The only, thing, the only thing that was strategy was a flying armbar. But for the rest, like, it was like, I, because I know I hit her, and then her hair went like this. And the only thing she did was this. I was like, holy fuck. <laughs> and then she hit me. And I went into the ropes and I was like, okay, if she hits me once more, I'm like KO. And then from the, the, the power of that she threw me in the ropes, I used it when it bounced back to run. And then I don't know what happened. And then I, when we had the connection, I knew because we had rehearsed it in the locker room, the flying arm bar. And then my trainer told me, give her two knees. And then when I say go, you go. So when you listen to the video, you also hear him like, well, yeah, go. And then I jump and then... And I, I was so tired because after what I said, after the first fight, all the tension is gone. So then you feel like, oh, I'm actually, you know, the adrenaline is gone. Like, oh, I'm quite tired. And I remember that I jumped in her and then I landed on the floor. And the only thing I needed to do was like, keep it tight and stretch my hips. But I was so tired. So I, I said to myself, okay, the only thing that you need to do, Marlouz, is one more time, one, you know, an explosion of power. And then you can go to home, to the hotel, you can go to bed. So that's what I did. <laughs> and then I broke her arm. Yes. Yeah, you, uh, I'm like watching it. And like, I, I don't like to look at records. You know, I, I remember you're, you were quite accomplished, obviously. And I'm watching this fight and I'm like, oh man, this, this has got the potential to be really, really bad. And <laughs> your jumping flying armbar was cutting edge. I mean, forget women's mixed martial arts. It was cutting edge across the board, whether it was in the women's or men's division. And now, your trainers well, had an incredible amount of confidence in you and your abilities, much more than yourself at this time. I was actually inspired by Rumina Sato. He did it uh, in Shuto yeah. in Switzerland, like I think in eight seconds. And my trainer had the video. And we rewatched it for, I think, like 20 times back in the Netherlands. I was like, this is so cool. I want to learn this. And that's why I did it. I did. I was young. I wasn't thinking things through. I was just like, oh, we're going to do it. Yeah, okay, let's go. Not thinking about the consequences, what would happen if I would fail. <laughs> there, were, there was no failing. Yeah, so a lot of intuition, a lot of fear, and a lot of luck. Yeah. But, you know, when luck consistently shows up, you know, in somebody's yeah. fights, you know, kind of, it's really not so much luck as it is skill. And that's what we see with uh, Megumi y Yabushida. You know, it's a, a recurring, uh, recurring opponent of yours. But at this time, she actually defeats the six foot three, 330 pound Russian by decision. So you're kind of, you're walking into a fight where you're the fresher of the two. What were your thoughts going into that? Like on your third fight, like you already have issues with one fight and now you're on your third in the same day. I thought I'm going to beat up that little Japanese woman. Oh, so you actually turned the corner then. 
confidence wise. Like, what? Well, uh, she's little. I'm gonna beat her up. Now, well, you know what happens. <laughs> well, but yeah, we see that you said that Yuki Kondo was uh, a judoka. Yabushida would be a better judoka. For yeah. sure. I think she won like um, silver on the Olympics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's what you see what the Japanese do to you. First. They, they, they test you first and then they hit you with a legitimate real badass. <laughs> I have so much respect for her. She's so like, I think that woman deserves uh, so much more attention than that she has had. Has I agree. Received. She's like amazing. Yeah. So Yabushida controlled you. I mean, she had a couple, you know, strong judo throws and she took take she took you down several times, but couldn't do anything with the position. And while you're on the bottom, you're really working hard. And at the time, MM mixed martial arts judging was horrible, no matter what country you were in. And it appeared that you may have not gotten the decision, but they raised your hand. I thought I had lost. Yes. Yeah. I, I thought so. So, and I like I mean winning on points in Japan, you know, uh-uh, ain't gonna happen. I remember from that fight that I I, I knocked her down, and she bent over to touch her uh, face, and I was like, if I kick her now in the face, it's over. But I felt sorry for her. I was like, nah, I'm not gonna do that. Well, that was one of the biggest lessons that I've ever had because after that, I was going, boom, 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 every she threw me all over the ring, <laughs> and. Um, I learned well, a lot from that. What I think helped was the rule set. Like, I, I would agree with you. Like, if it's a regular mixed martial arts rule set, I'd say you're hard-pressed to think, you know, you would get your hand raised. But that one knockdown, the way Shudo scores, counts it as a 10-8 round. Probably. I, I Actually, I've never thought it through. I was like, I lost. Oh, I won. <laughs> then yeah. okay, let's go with the rest of my career. I never, I've never looked back a lot in my career. Oh, good. But I think you know, <laughs> what you're saying um, makes sense. What did that pay you, if you don't mind us asking? They won, I won a tournament. Yes, with the tournament, what did it, what did it pay? Uh, it, well, it was $100,000. Holy cow. Good for yeah. you. Good for you, because, you yeah, know... Yeah, but a lot of things went off. Oh, uh -huh. yeah, yeah. And, oh, and for it, sure. You know, everybody was getting their money. Like it's still, yeah, it's still also very, Eating. you know, the kind of thing is, is it's really not that much money. You know no. what I mean? But, no. it, you know, we know this now as adults and everything, but for them, and also even then the men didn't make that. So definitely my hat's off to the promoters and to yourself for winning that. That's cool. That's definitely cool. And I, I will also point out that at this point, worldwide, reputation wise, this Dutch girl is number one. Up. She's already broken a couple of arms. She's got a collection of arms. Look at this. <laughs> yeah. And, and Becky Levi, like, Marlos, I'm, I'm just going to be very direct with you. And usually we should probably be a little more candid. But we've had, um, we've had guests uh, that dealt with Becky Levi as a promoter with Dan Severn. There's some legendary stories in, some, <laughs> in our library. And all of them had to deal with her intimidating men, like grown adults, Dan Bobish being one of them, where she was very aggressive and not afraid to fist fight with a man. And I think what you accomplished that day, I shouldn't say I think, it was shocking. Like here in the United States going, all right, Becky's going to go there, clean up, get her money and come home. And when we heard about this, you know, feminine, very athletic Dutch woman that handled her business over there it was it was quite shocking at least here yeah. state size 
I think she has she underestimated me. I mean, it's the first rule of fighting: don't underestimate your opponent, and that's what she did. But she can see how she reacts on me punching her and grabbing her neck. She's still like, okay, well, okay, let's go along with it. You know, don't demolish the, her so quick. I, I have underestimated people as well in my career, and I also had to pay for it. So at this time, are you fighting full time? Uh, after that tournament i started uh i quit school i dropped out of university and i was like i'm gonna be just like the guys the k1 champs and all and uh it didn't happen but uh yeah <laughs> that's interesting yep. okay so from there may 3rd 2001 you fight in remix uh, again in japan against uh yoko takahishi yeah from the uh tomogumi gym the first time i was in japan i saw her and i was so happy that I didn't have to fight her because again I was like oh she's so scary I don't want to fight her <laughs> and then I was the champ and the first one that I had to fight was was her and uh, so that was a big mental test I was all of a sudden I was a champion and I had to face again an opponent that I was, I was like kind of scared of and what I remember from that fight is that my trainer gave me uh, he, he said something to me and he wanted me to do something, but I didn't understand him. And then I, I created something and created a different armbar than what he mentioned. That's what I know from that fight. And also that, you know, I faced my, my, my fears and I conquered. And I fought her later on again. Yeah, so you've, yeah, you've, you've, you had some repeat opponents. Yeah. It seemed that the Japanese audience really enjoyed having you over to their country. Um, was there a language? Did you start like understanding J Japan or Japanese a little bit better at this point? Yeah, no, I, I, I have such a love for Japan. And there are actually two countries like America and Japan that, that are, have really changed my life and that I have a deep love for. And the first time, the first one was Japan. I remember and I didn't really... I didn't realize the time at the time being that when I, uh, I felt coming home when I first touchdown uh, uh, in, uh, in Tokyo, like there was something in that culture and that vibe of, of the Japanese that, that I really felt. And um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, I have friends over there. Actually, Chris Light has fought one of my friends, Taro Obata. Okay. Oh, okay. Day, he to this day is a good friend of mine. And uh, now I have a big love for Japan and I, I try to I know some words, of course, but I haven't been to Japan since I think 2013. So it's a very long time. Uh, yeah. yeah, I want to go back. I have to want to show my little one Japan. That's yeah. cool. So you win by armbar in the first round and you, you wait until January of the next year in order to get a rematch, rematch against uh, Megumi Yabushida. Yeah, and JD, I think the event is called JD NHB. I, I, I don't know, Japan Dojo NHB, I think is, is what it was. Whatever. I was like, you want me to fight? I'm coming. Yeah, it was in Corken Hall. And I, what I loved about it is that like everyone who, who has a career in Japan has fought in Corken Hall. So to me, that was a, a big one to fight there. And uh, well, that fight was over pretty quick. I was nervous because of the first fight and it took me 50 minutes, you know. And then that second fight, yeah, was I uh, I hit her and then I did a rear naked choke and then phew, all the blood came out and it was over. But um, yeah, again, it was a fight that that um, derived me, I think, of my uh, fear, like I'm not good enough. 
Well, he, there was questions in regards to whether you won the first fight. So now they bring you back out again to kind of figure this out. And, you know, you, you ended the fight with an exclamation point. You finished her. Like, there's no doubt about, you know, no. that outcome at that point. It was dominant. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. And, and you can see your confidence, too. Yeah. Uh, what? Your confidence is growing as well. Yeah, but I have always been very insecure during my um, career because I was, uh, I'm a perfectionist, so it was never good enough for me. Well, let me ask you, when you said you, you enjoyed the reception in Japan, it's in, in Holland, and we joked around a little bit, but in Holland, like Gilbert Iville, the Overeem brothers, Bob Schreiber, like... Sammy uh, Schultz. Yeah, like the guys, the guys are rough dudes, you know? It's, Peter Ertz, yeah, Ertz, yeah. Like, but in Japan, you are really treated like an athlete. Was that part of, of the appeal to you? Or did you find that you were getting respect in Holland as well? No, so, no, no. In, in the Netherlands, kickboxing was king. And they didn't understand MMA too much. It's starting now. Actually, I think a year or four, the things start to shift. That you see kickboxers uh, transferring to MMA. Elias Boulaid is fighting now in in. Um, a Bellator, for instance, he has 170 kickboxing fights. Wow. So we see more Amerto Groenhardt. He was always with the gym of um, Mike Passanier, fought in glory, was a glory champ and so on. So we see now more that transition. But first, I was a woman. A second, it was MMA. So people weren't that interested. I've never really? been a star in the Netherlands. No, 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 never. So you're huge in Japan. It's kind of like one of those indie bands. Yeah, we're big in Japan. <laughs> yeah. yeah, true. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah, but it was okay with me because I, I uh, it was good. I don't, I don't want to walk over the street and everybody's like, hey, we're looking. Yeah, you can live your life. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So three months later, April 14, 2002, you fight uh, Miwako Ishihara. Oh, Ishihara, yeah. <laughs> from the Zendokai gym, which is also just... You're, you're, you're literally, you're knocking off like the famous, one famous gym after another in regards to people that produce, you know, incredible women's talent in Japan. She was a Kyokushinkai uh, fighter uh, from origin. Yeah. I rem uh, then uh, at that point, I had started training with Lucien Carbin uh, to develop my stand-up fighting. And he said before I left to Japan, okay, your kicks are getting better, but not good enough. So I remember in that fight that I wanted to give her a kick. And then I heard Lucien like, don't do that. And then <laughs> out of my rhythm, I, I, was, I wasn't feel, fighting on intuition anymore because I was an intuitive fighter. Uh, but I started to think that that's what I, I, I know from that fight. For rest, don't know anything about a fight anymore. <laughs> okay. So you take over a year off. Um, you know, you go from April of 2002 to December of 2004. What was the reason for that, that layoff? Uh, I don't know exactly, but um, when I was 20 or 21, I got a disease. I think you call it not mononucleosis, but it attacks the liver. You're really tired. Young people have it all the time. Pfeiffer, we say in the Netherlands, but I don't know. Okay. okay. No, it's not Lyme. My partner is sitting over there. Is it Lyme disease? Yeah, no? No, no, no. It's, it's Pfeiffer, yeah. Well, anyway, you're very, really tired and it attacks the liver. And um, uh, I was overtrained, I think, when I got that. And then I also got seizures. Like oh, wow. Twitching and stuff like that. And I also started to scream when I was tired. 
And that started at the moment that I really had the disease. So the doctor was at home and I was like, oh, doing this. And that was actually throughout my career, my biggest secret. I've had that throughout my entire career. So, and, and if I'm talking about seizures, I mean, every day that I woke up from that point on, I, uh, I was tired. I didn't feel good. I was nauseous. I always say it felt like gray. I know it cannot, things cannot feel gray, but that's how it felt to me. So uh, when I stepped into the cage, if it was Strike Force, Bellator, Invicta, whatever, or uh, even back in Japan, then I already had it as well. Um, I thought I had a disease. The first neurologist, it was the first specialist that I saw. He said, well, maybe you've got Chilla Tourette, but I don't know. He did all these tests, he ran all these tests on me. But uh, I have no idea. Well, goodbye. And um, he said that I maybe had a, a virus in me or, or bacteria. So that guy, it was the first uh, specialist I saw after meeting with the GP. He gave me the idea that I was sick. So throughout my career, also when I was fighting ABCC and all, um, my biggest fear was that I would have a seizure on the mat or in the cage. And meanwhile, I was going to all these doctors because I, I needed pill. I, I want to I have a pill so I could feel good again and I could fight better than I was doing currently. So throughout my career, I actually have been handicapped and it was uh, late... Uh, 2012 that I spoke with a neuropsychologist who was a former boxer so all these other specialists had no idea who I was because I looked like a normal girl and I said I was fighting and they were like fighting oh what's this and um and he understood what was going on he said you're overtrained I said overtrained can you be more than a decade overtrained and he looked me in the eye and he said yeah well apparently you can and then, you know, it hit me like, okay, so I'm not sick. I'm just overtrained. And then I had a few months later, I had a fight in, uh, in Dream, <laughs> Tokyo. So that's why, you know, fighting in strike, for, uh, in strike Force, I had to cut to 135. So imagine you're already overtrained for so many years. You're training only with guys. The training system of my trainer was not good for me. And I had to cut a lot of weight. Yeah, so, now you well, mentioned you mentioned the disease. I'm gonna take a shot at it. Uh, the liver disease was it hepatitis? No, 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 no. It's uh, let me okay. Google it if, if I can. Okay, no, no problem. I didn't mean to derail that, but I thought I had it. So yeah, I, I was kind of thinking the same thing, but but uh, but th that's interesting because you know it is a handicap. So in other words, there were no medical tests or blood tests or anything like that in Japan when you were doing that stuff. No glandular fever. Okay. Is that a word? Yeah. You know what it is? Uh, Glandular fever, it says. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm, that's way out of my scope of anything. <laughs> so I, you know, I'm nodding my head. Well, yes. You're tired no. all the time. That's yeah. the thing. All right. So you bounce back with a four person tournament, a four woman tournament. And, you know, there's some wait, interesting. Let, let, let me ask a, a little bit of politics about that because you went from Shudo and the remix shows. And then you took the break also. Did those shows fade away? Did they call you uh, during that time? Because now when you come back, it, and you're now in Smack Girl. So it's a different organization. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, no, actually, we, 
I didn't have a real management that would go out and get me fights. They just called my trainer and he said, okay, we'll just get fight. And that was it. So that was the reason I fought or I didn't fight. And then also in Japan, uh, the market was declining at that point also. But when I was doing that four women tournament, oh no, was it the tournament with uh, Aaron in it or with? Uh, yes. In it? Yeah, or with yeah. So let me, let me kind of set it up again. Um, so December 19, 2004, you fight the Smack Girl tournament. And these are all competing organizations. Like, what, you know, to further what Miguel just said, in essence, like, if you look at local Japanese fighters, they tend to always stay within certain organizations. And very rarely do you see them bounce around to where you're the opposite. You seem to be a free agent. And generally speaking, in Japan, it's frowned upon, but you seem to be the exception of the rule. Well, maybe I was a gaijin, you know, foreigner. So maybe that was okay with it. I was so young, I had no clue. And I just took the fights they offered me and I hadn't signed anywhere. I mean, you just asked me like, where the blood test? No, you didn't even step on the scale. You just fought. Oh, wow. Wow. So you fight in a, a four-woman tournament. Um, it would have been hard to weigh Becky. Just... Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> I don't comment on that. You fight in a four-woman tournament and your first bout is obviously a rematch with Yoko Takahashi. Yeah. I, uh, okay. I, the only reason I went to Japan was I was I was sick at that point. Like really, really sick. Uh, Overtrained, you know, no. Well, it was still the five, I think, also uh, working. But um, I was like, yeah, I'm the champion. I at least have to defend my title. So after the first fight, after beating uh, Yoko Takahashi, like I said, in the first uh, tournament, the adrenaline uh, dump comes. No, it's not a drum, but you, the adrenaline is gone. And you're like, okay, everything is okay. Who, I don't care what we're going to do. Have a beer or fight. It's okay. I'm, I'm relaxed. And before I entered the cage of the, to fight Aaron, I said to my trainer, like, I'm, I'm kind of tired. But, you know, if I look back on it, I shouldn't even have uh, flown to Japan. It was, like, not healthy for me to do so when I was fighting Erin, I didn't like her a bit at all. There, so, there seems to be an issue between you two. When did this start? And, and I'll expand later, but where does this start? Well, she, you know, I think she, uh, she was jealous that I won the tournament because there was another girl, um, a Dutch girl, uh, who was sitting also on the catwalk when they raised my hand. And then Erin was commenting on it. So I think it came from her like uh, that I, I shouldn't have won the tournament. So, and then I, she was very standoffish and yeah, but okay. I wasn't, later on in my career, I wasn't nice to other girls either. So uh, at this point in time, I'm like, I don't give a shit. Well, <laughs> if you look at some of the backstage footage, I was able to find some online. You hear Aaron say, that's payback. That's payback. As if there were some sort of exchange that happened between you two where she felt slighted. Yeah, I know. I I scratched your face, but I didn't do that on purpose. I did. Now you say it. I remember that during the uh, rest, she said that bitch uh, with my uh, nails. I scratched her face, but what I remember from that fight is that I knew how she would knock me out, and I didn't care about go, being knocked out. But I was like, I will not give you that. That you can knock me out. I will. I will stop myself. So really dumb she could have better knock me out he will never stop a fight you know but at that point that was my decision you, you know what i thought was unfair was aaron was was wearing an earring at the time and you punched her to the side of the head causing blood 
And rather than allowing you to continue, the referee stops to allow the doctor to look at it. So essentially, it's you're on your way. Yeah. You're working to get a knockout. She's got something in her ear that they allowed into the ring for competition. It creates an injury. <laughs> and now we have to stop the fight in order for them to look at it, stopping your momentum. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I'm, I'm 40 years old now. It's, I'm good with it, you know. <laughs> yeah, you. you're, you're completely, you're right. It, it's like, how crazy. Why did they on earth that are with earrings into the ring? And why did she want to wear earrings in a ring? Crazy. But uh, yeah, you're right. But that's the thing. I never watch my fight backs, uh, my fights back. So this, what you're telling me is actually new information for me. <laughs> Maybe you we know, can file some sort of grievance. Mm -hmm. We could get that reversed, maybe. We'll give a file some sort of grievance on the fight. <laughs> 17 but, years later. And you know what? I I, I think I, I made a mistake when I when I kind of categorized what this was. It was actually an eight-woman tournament, and Aaron yes. Tohill lost to Yabushida in the yes. finals. So somebody you bested twice, including finishing, Aaron just couldn't climb that mountain in the finals. Well, Aaron gave up uh, fighting Gunarenko in the first uh, tournament. She wasn't mentally that stable. That's, I mean, look at what Yabushita did against Gunarenko, and she just gave up, and she was twice the size and strength of Yabushita. Yeah. Yeah, she's a front runner, it would seem. Like, she does well in fights when she's ahead, and then not so oh. much. But, but how did that loss affect you in terms of this is your first? It's your first loss? loss? You know, yeah. who... Who, 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 who's a, a mentor for you here to help you through this in, in Holland? Is it Martin de Jong? Is it, are you with new people? Are you doing this by yourself still? Yeah, well, I understand when I lost, if, I, if I'm honest, he never kind of really cared. He never uh, um, walked through it or helped me. So I did it on myself, by myself, basically. But I didn't know any better. I just had one trainer and, you know, follow his lead. And when I got so tired, I told myself, you know, when I got the disease, I told myself, like, before that, I was trying to figure everything out. You know, I want to learn everything. And then I lost the joy in fighting. And I started out fighting because eventually, because I wanted to learn how to defend myself. But then I really enjoyed it. And then I told myself, okay, if, you know, if gaining all this data and all this intel and information and trying to make sense of MMA doesn't make you happy because it's too much of you, then just follow the lead of your trainer so you find your happiness there. And that's basically what I have done from that point on throughout my career. Uh, looking back on that, it wasn't the most uh, smart decision, but it was a good decision for me at the time. Because I think I have stopped, I could have developed myself way much more if I, I had to my mind on, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So like, for instance, how, like you're obviously a legend in Japan at this time in women's mixed martial arts. And th there's no question in regards to their respect for your abilities. How was dealing with the press after your first loss? It's okay. Cause the next time you, you talk to the press, they're always very polite in Japan. And um, I had like what I call my Japanese father, Manabu Takashima. He was always, always, always writing for Gongak Taguchi. And, um, and Manabu was always quite direct to me, but I liked that because I'm Dutch, we're rude people. 
Mm-hmm. And um, and then it's also you're you're gone the next day, so you do not really know what they write about. You I mean like in the beginning when I entered the my first fight, I had seen uh, fighters how they greet, you know, they you know from like Kyokushinkai karate style. So and I also had learned that how they bow, you have to bow as deep as possible because more polite. <laughs> so I kind of mixed it up. And I did, I bought about so weird that they even took pictures of it, put it in the Gongak Taguchi, and they called me the penguin. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I in had other words, no idea. you had disrespectful, <laughs> you had disrespectful bows. Yeah, <laughs> basically, but I was trying so hard. <laughs> that was your, your, yeah. your trash talk. I will give you a half-hearted yeah. bow. <laughs> no idea. <That's> <laughs> I did everything wrong you could do wrong in a bow. <laughs> So March 11th, 2006, you have a really good bounce back fight. And, um, you know, it's almost a year after. So you take another extended period off. And this fight, in my opinion, like as a trainer and somebody that has love for one of their students, when somebody takes a loss, you have to be very careful so you don't damage the confidence in their next fight. And they give you a really good bounce back fight in uh, Shudo, March 11, 2006. And again, a rematch with Yoko Takahashi. So the, the pool of women fighters isn't very deep, no. but the ones that do fight are constantly gunning for you, it seems. Yeah, she, she, I completely forgot about that fight. I didn't know I thought of, thought of three times. I don't know anything. <laughs> I know where it was, now you're telling me. The, okay, let me tell you what I know from this fight, yeah. G-Shooter. Yeah, and I know uh, they drove me to it, and then we entered a, a garage, and I was like, where's the garage? But it was with an elevator. That's basically what I know from that fight. For the rest, I don't know anything. Sorry. <laughs> 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 it was quick. I mean, it was 39 seconds, and you won by armbar. Oh, in the first round? Yes. I really don't know anymore. Well, well your confidence <laughs> at this point, like you, you started this interview with, I'm scared, I'm crying, I'm nervous. I think those airplane rides are much different now. Well, no, I, no, 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 no. Throughout my career, also when I was fighting in strike force, only when I was fighting at the 135 division, I was like, okay, this is fighting like in midget land. I don't care. But even for every fight, I would, I was always nervous, always. And I have always doubted myself because I was very, I was a perfectionist. And uh, the feedback that I got from a trainer wasn't, really no nah, it wasn't the most build-up feedback that i received yeah let me i'm, I'm very poly, uh, very uh, diplomatic right now <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's okay. like that but uh yeah so it was me being the perfectionist and also the feedback and that combined in a fighter that i had a really really big drive uh it was compromised by the disease uh, um but still it was so huge that i could even get a you know a title and strike force being sick and um, even mentally, I was also really strong, but I think that that uh, lack of confidence made me a good fighter. Well, one of the crazy things is that other than your two amateur events, your two amateur bouts that you had described earlier, you haven't fought at home yet. Yeah. That is a professional. And your next fight is January 21st, 2007. So another extended period off. Um, you fought Ultimate Glory in Amsterdam against, jeez, uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher this name. It's Majanka <laughs> L- Lathors, I want to say. 
I think she was Turkish, right? Yeah. Oh no. She's from Exit BJJ. Oh no, no, no. this was in uh, in um, in Amsterdam. Amsterdam. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, she didn't really want to fight. Um, yeah, yeah. For that fight, so I was trying to. I had learned some things about how the people in America were doing their cutting, and uh, I went into a sauna. I did everything wrong, also the recovery. So um, I, I I went into the sauna. Then <laughs> then I had to drive for an hour while I was already on weight. Get on the scale. And then I went shopping with my mom because it was still <laughs> so me, <you> know, <laughs> how my recovery was. <laughs> so the next day I was in the in the ring and I wasn't feeling too good, but I won that fight. I don't know anymore how, but, but <laughs> so overtrained, uh, getting weight wrong, no recovery, and then fighting. So um, yeah, that's what I know. But I remember she didn't really want to fight. She basically wanted take it to the floor and then, you know, do the, her BJJ thing. So you win by armbar in the second round. At this point, were you a big ticket seller at home? No, 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 not at all. Really? I'm a woman and it was MMA. People in the Netherlands come for, you know, Rico Verhoeven, he is like a real big celebrity in the Netherlands. He's also the first fighter that is an, has, has, uh, has reached this level. But he's a heavyweight, he's a male, and he's a kickboxer. That's what we like in the Netherlands. We don't like- Were you on the poster? You had to have been on the poster. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so. Yeah, I think so. You had to have been. So I'm assuming you've got, there, there's a lot of moving parts prior to stepping you know, through the ring ropes and you haven't fought at home. So now you're at home, everyone keeps hearing about what a big deal you are in Japan. I yeah. have to assume you're phone is blowing up there's a lot more distractions at this time for you no i think what you're doing is you're projecting the american culture on the dutch culture and we don't have the sports culture like you have in the states which is wonderful you know i mean i've, I've been training uh, for three months with eric aiken in, in kansas at a high school for wrestling if i see what you have in america and the mindset I mean, we've got the hooligans here. You don't have hooligans in, in the States, you know. You've got families who are getting together. And how do you call it when they were in the parking lot and they open their the truck, the, the back of the truck, and they're barbecuing and yeah. it's a family affair. And people in, in America call others athletes, you know. It, and they say with a, 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 an amount of respect that we lack in the Netherlands. So in the Netherlands, let me paint a picture a bit for you. Fighting is obscene it's for low-life people it's for criminals it's for inked people you know stuff like that and then there's this girl that is uh, well in dutch i'm more eloquent than in, in, in english that doesn't look like a fighter that actually can put two words together and so on and she's doing mma what is mma mma is like cage fighting but she's a woman it's not possible women cannot fight like that they don't become aggressive so i was way too weird for people for the mainstream media to really um uh, help me to acknowledge me for what i have truly done so what we now see is that it's starting to change because of social media of course uh, but now i'm way too old so people have no idea what i have done in in japan they only know what i have done in uh, invicta or in in bellator and even a little bit of strike force but for me if i look back on it I was so exhausted. It's impossible to put in words how hard my uh, road yeah, 
throughout my career, how hard it has been. And when I was fighting in ADCC, I think it was the second time and I was fighting the, the Australian fighter. I had a okay. seizure on the mat. It started, I had to do it. I had 10 seconds. My train told me 10 seconds and I, I could get an armbar out. And then I started already doing this and he picked me up and he took me out, out of sight so no one would see it. I mean, that was my career. But it's, people will never understand how hard for it has been. And they don't care and that's okay. I've learned a lot from it and I, I can now use everything that I've learned in the cage and in the dojo. I can help other people getting strong and, you know, but it's a whole story. Well, it's from there you take the first, like you're talking about. Is it about Penny Thomas, the, the Australian? Yeah, blonde short hair, but yeah. Yeah, I think it was Penny Thomas. Go ahead, Mike. What a twice. Yeah. So on May 27, 2007, you fought in Cape Grace. It was the first time they ever addressed your illness. Um, they said that there were rumors of you being sick and you fought in an eight woman tournament. So you're sick. And like the challenges that you're putting yourself into are, you know, they're not slowing down. Like they're not too big, even though on a surface level, you know, they obviously are. And your first fight was against Kiko Tammy. It, Is this it was the a ferry tournament. Yes, you, it was the you, it was the second person from the Tamagori gym that you had fought. Yeah, I, I only know the last two fights with the Polish girl. The Polish girl's the, next. That's yeah. Magdalena Jureka. Yeah. And well, here let's let's go. The uh, <laughs> Kiko fight you won in the first round by rear naked choke. It was a quick one. You go up against a woman from Poland, uh, Magdalena Jureka. You win in the second round by rear naked choke. Okay. And then in the finals, which was incredible, like for us, um, you lose to Roxanne Matafari. Yeah, well, actually, I'm still pissed about that one. She tapped. She tapped, and then the referee told me to let go. And then all of a sudden, we had uh, to stop, and it was time. And then we had to fight another round. I was also, between rounds, I was burping and puking a bit. And then uh, a friend of mine told me that her referee was from the same same gym as Roxanne was. That's what I heard later on. But she tapped. So to me, I didn't lose that fight. But I was so pissed about it that when they... Uh, I love Roxanne, by the way. I love her. Um, that I was fighting a strike force that my trainer had really campaigned to have my uh, debut fight against Roxanne because I really wanted to settle score. You know, where did she tap? I, I didn't see it on video. I don't Do know recall? anymore. I know she tapped. I don't even know. In, it was at the end of the first round? or well, at, You at won the first round, round, for sure. No, but it was, on the, it was on the ground, I remember, and she tapped. I don't know, may, I don't know if I had her in the armbar or in a choke. I had her in a lock at one of the first or at the second round. Hmm. Again, I didn't watch the fight back ever. Mm -hmm. If you have it for me, please uh, send it <laughs> yes. to me. Yeah. So it's your second loss. It's your second loss. And um, you take another year off. Like your, your illness is bothering you. Like it's, it's well, affecting fight, fight, how you fight, make money as well. Yeah, but fights were also not uh, given to me. So it wasn't oh. only, only I fought always, but um, I wanted, always wanted to fight because my ego was so big and my drive was even bigger. 
but the fights were, were just not coming my way. And also a lot of girls didn't want to fight me, if I'm correct. That's something that pops up now as well. So you go back to the Netherlands, Beast of the East, May 31st, 2008. So it's like a year later. And ASCII Kubra from Snake Team, you get kind of a gift opponent with her. I'm so sorry for you because this must be such an annoying interview, but I don't know anything about that fight. <laughs> it was a girl. She never she never had a career win. You got an arm bar. You were in and out. I think it was just kind of like a knock the ring rust off. And, you know, it was a smart move. Like, if you've got a year off, you got to get back in there. Like, your, your trainers yeah. were, were, were being very smart with your career. And hey, this is back you, in Holland. Yeah, it's yeah, back in I Holland. Beast of the East, but the only fight that I remember from Beast of the East was against Sidney Dandois. No, you were in and out. Like, this is a really, I mean. <laughs> That's why, probably. <laughs> you may have rode your bike there, armbarred her, yeah. and left. I mean, it's. Well, actually, it wasn't that far from uh, from my hometown. <laughs> um, and then you 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 go to Switzerland from there, Thai ah, box. Yeah, Romy. Yeah. Against Romy Royusen. Yeah, she was a tough opponent. Yeah. Very tough. It was her home hometown crowd. Yeah, I remember that. Actually, we drove to uh, uh, Swiss together with Sia Bahadur Zara. He's now the, he fought in, uh, in the UFC as well. And he's now the main coach of Evolve Gym in uh, Singapore from one championship. And uh, I forgot my passport. So they, they uh, stopped us at the border and we just smiled and somehow they let us through. But otherwise we had to drive back all the way to the Netherlands. Yeah, somehow I forgot to be. <laughs> so uh, we went in there. It was a nice venue, I remember. And Romy was more agile and more uh, uh, strong than I anticipated. And I think I won that one on an armbar eventually. It wasn't points, right? Rear naked choke. Oh, so rear naked choke, yeah. Sometimes the most dangerous of opponents are the ones you know nothing about. And she comes into this fight at 1-0. And, and, you know, there's not a large pool of women fighting at this time. I mean, that's, that's just a fact. And she holds top position um, for the majority of the fight. And you're working submissions and you're almost catching her, almost catching her. And, um, you know, prior to landing the rear naked choke, you had a whole bunch of almost submissions but Romy had some very good hips. Yeah, I think she was a former judo fighter who went into BJJ. She was doing yes. a lot of BJJ fights uh, and then transferred to uh, MMA. And that's a reoccurring theme. Miguel, this is a reoccurring theme for her. Like, it seems as if the promoters are digging into that, like, judo, like, pool and just pulling out whoever they could, like the high judoko players. You're running into them, whether it was in Japan, obviously that's in Switzerland. But in Beast of the East, Cindy Dadonis was also on the Olympic ladder for judo. And, you know, for Belgium, it later transitioned to mixed martial arts. You're yeah. actually her first fight. But in terms of international competition, she might have more international competition than that of yourself at this point. Yeah, well, at that point, I, uh, oh, again, I've done so many dumb stuff in my career. So I had heard from a guy who said, and he was a, a physiotherapist, really renowned in the Netherlands. And he said like, yeah, you have to do yoga. And you know, every, everywhere around the world, monks and, and all such like that, they wake up at four o'clock and they do the, the sun greet. So a week prior to my fight, I remember I was always exhausted and always tired. And I thought I had a disease. And meanwhile, I was 
creating, you know, fucking up my body. I woke Who up. Was it, uh, some of it in your head? What? Do you think you were some of it like where, where you're dealing with a lot of like the, the sickness? Do you think maybe you were replicating it in your head oh, to a no, certain degree? Not at all. No, no, no. I was <laughs> looking for a cure. So during training, I also went to all the specialists that I could find because I thought the only thing I need is a pill and then I will be better again. So I wasn't busy with being sick. I was busy with finding a cure. So that's a different mindset. But a week before I started to do uh, at four o'clock in the morning, um, the sun greet, I think you call it like that. Mm -hmm. So that's completely fucked up my whole rhythm. And, and <laughs> so I was already like, uh, I remember, that's what I remember that Nikki Holtzkin, the kickboxing fighter, he was, I remember that he was looking at me, what's happening with my loose? I was, I was already doing this in the locker room. That's, and my, we, we didn't even hit the mitts. Because it wasn't, it was impossible, and that's that's what my trainer should have set my loose. I don't give a shit what's going on now, because I had a lot of pride. I would never back down. But you're going home now, and I will call someone that will bring you home. But instead, he just sent me to the ring and let me fight. And in that fight, I remember, I think I had her in the armbar. It's and awful. It's yeah, awful. it is. It is. And he didn't call me afterwards. They're like, "Hey, how are you doing? How are you feeling now?" Yeah, yeah. And uh, we also had referees that were kickboxing referees. They didn't understand the ground game. So they let us up when I had her like in a lock or whatever. And she won that fight, but you know, that's, this is a story behind, behind that fight. And then I wanted to fight her again. I even faced her once I said, let's fight again. And she said like, no, my brother doesn't want that. Of course she didn't want to fight me again. I understand why. But that, that's, the, that's the thing that stinks. And I'm trying, I'm like, I'm 40, I don't give a shit anymore. But when I talk about it, I'm like, wow. <laughs> I'm still like, <laughs> I should think I'm 40. Forget Who was managing it. you at this time? I think it was with Golden Glory. I don't know sure if the, I was already at that point, but I think I was already then uh, with Golden Glory. Is it Epi et, uh, Etchteld? No, 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 no. He has never, never uh, been my uh, man. He wasn't okay. with Golden Glory. Okay. I think the I know next there was, fight, um... yeah, the next fight you have is on a show called Tough Is Not Enough in Holland. That sounds like an oppie show because he'd like to do it. Showtime, <laughs> Tough Is Not Enough. He used to come up with those flashy names. Is that him promoting? Could be. I don't know. Well, you know, a little side note, Epi Etchfeld, Etch held the manager uh, Simon Rudd's test Simon Rudd's testified in court that Abby hired a hitman to kill him so it's just kind of so people can yeah, kind yeah, of I know this story. yeah 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 I know would, this story. would you mind telling our listeners at home what that mm -hmm. might be I'm, I'm afraid that I'm telling this wrong so I will I'll keep it short but what I know is that at this point at the uh, at a forum in the Netherlands they had put, uh, I think, uh, that call on the, uh, or they, no, they had listened to the call that was recorded and they wrote about it on the, uh, on the forum. That's what I know about it. I don't know it any closer than that. But yeah, I, I know that story. So with Golden Glory, were you also, did you have a lot of interactions with Ron Nyquist? Yeah, 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 for sure. So Ron, Ron Nyquist, um, like a car bomb almost killed him? Yep. What was it like dealing with, with Ron? Well, the thing is, I hardly, okay, 
um, I remember that I was, I was already champion in Japan and uh, someone had, uh, no, I think one has, had given the uh, girlfriend of my trainer free tickets. So we went to this event and he was sitting Kate's side and in the Netherlands we had this thing, bar mitzvah, you have the idea, you have these tables and then at nearby the ring. And then, you know, the, the, the motor gang guys sitting there, the criminals are sitting there and they get all this food and people are walking around with trays and champagne and everybody's seeing, you know, it's, it's a big show around the ring. And uh, he was the big man. And I remember that she went to him to uh, thank him. And then the big man, he saw me and I was like, I'm not going, you know, I was shy. I'm not going to that, that, that VIP section. Then the big man of the entire venue went to me, he walked to me and he, he had a chat with me, like very superficial. And that made an impact on me. I was like, okay, this guy doesn't have to do this, but he's so kind that he comes to me. And I was looking like a skater girl. Right? I wasn't dressed in a bodycon and high heels. I was just wearing uh, sneakers and stuff like that. And then uh, another time, I don't know exactly, I also met him and he, he again did a very small thing that told me something about his personality. And then the day that he got uh, almost, he died almost of a car bomb. Uh, uh, bomb. And now, he, now, you know, he ended up in jail because he, I think he, he killed, he killed, killed the, yeah. yeah, he killed the brothers that yeah. allegedly yeah. tried yeah. to kill him. Yeah, he up, now I know again. Yeah. And um, then my trainer told me that, uh, well, basically that he was in uh, isolation and uh, he was very sad. And then I thought by myself, okay, uh, let's do the right thing. Let's be kind to another person that has been kind to you. So I started to write him a letter just to be kind to him. And he writes me a letter back. And that's how we started to have contact. And uh, every once in a while, he called me. We weren't big friends or anything like that. But and when he called me, it was always about sports, 99% of the time. Sometimes he told me about that he was meditating and stuff like that. And if I look back on my career, I have shake hands with so many criminals most of the time i probably had no idea they were criminals also in japan you know i went i went to a club in japan we were invited and at the end <laughs> i was 19 all these japanese gangsters were standing in a line one was even having a mitella i didn't look at his finger but there was even there was bandage here so i don't know if the finger was gone and i was 19 blonde and we had to shake hands and greet the yakuza so and also in the Netherlands that I asked people like, okay, what are you doing for a job? And then they said, I'm an accountant. And I later on was like, that was, I don't know, accountants that look like that, you know? So I've, I've seen mm -hmm. so many criminals. But the thing is, if you put out a certain energy and a certain vibe, you can hang out with the worst people in the world. It will not affect you. So I've never heard anything about drugs or uh, criminal activities or whatsoever, because people just saw me and you were like, okay, this is a real athlete. This is a very naive girl or a young woman. No, we're not going to touch this. So yeah, you know, I have to no, a lot. Yeah, those, those type of people too are also very good to have on your side. Yeah, but actually when I was fighting in, in strike force and before I had to fight, he, it doesn't matter in which hotel I was, and he always had to pull from jail. He was always, he was, he gave the best uh, uh, pep talk ever. He gave me so much uh, uh, mental war power. Was, he was really good at that. I, I tell you, you know, and I've spoken to just a few Dutch people in regards to that scene, and it, it's like something out of a Netflix movie. It's, it's almost <laughs> yeah, kind of. Sure. 
Yeah. It's almost unbelievable. I mean, some fighters were killed in their cars behind the gym. Sometimes they were firebombed. Like it, whatever the moving parts were behind the scenes of the early Dutch days, I think it's almost a blessing that the majority of your career, when all of that was going on, was in Japan. For sure. I actually, I've trained with a guy. This is also such a crazy story. Um, his name was Jason Jones. And he was a former uh, judo, somebody already starts laughing now. Uh, he was a former judo fighter and he was really good. He actually, uh, one of a Dutch judo fighter who later who was an Olympic champion. So that, that was his level of judo. And, um, and I wasn't training with him, uh, like sparring because it was too big with me. But I, I can remember that for a fight, I think for the Misha Tate fight, he even helped me, uh, you know, I, I, I should defend and stuff like that. In the Netherlands, we have a system called, it's called TBS. And it means like, if you get that, you will never get out of jail anymore. And you have to go, you have to go to all these uh, psychologists and whatever. And if you're in that, it's over. Nobody wants to have TBS in the Netherlands. Well, he has that. And the reason is, is because he has killed his girlfriend that he, uh, he was uh, her pimp. And what he did, he climbed on a flat from the uh, balconies, from the one to the other. And then he stabbed her and put her, uh, set her house on fire. That's the guy that I've trained with. And uh, he was nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, crazy stuff. I, I mean, like things are, you know, coming up. It's, it's so much of in my keep, career. Keep, keep them coming, keep them coming. Yeah, Mark. I mean. <laughs> yeah, so many crazy stories. It's like, yeah. But so, you know what I've also learned is that we really think of people in really terms of black and white and uh, white. And what I've learned is that people are people, you know, we've got all two arms and two legs, or at least most of us. And what kind of gender, race, uh, ideology, uh, religion, whatever, or even if you have had a really, you've done really bad stuff, there's always another side. And we shouldn't judge people too, too hard and too often, I think. But that's what I, that's my opinion. Well, no, for, and you know, Marlowe's, I, I think the one thing that the three of us can agree on, whenever you're going to fight for a large organization, you know, whether it's in a foreign country, generally speaking, it's probably backed by money that you don't know, want to know where it came from. <laughs> yeah, but also the other end, there's like here in the Netherlands, people saying, you have La Cana and the, the grow shops and uh, the Casa Rosso, yeah, it's the uh, sex business. And people are really negative on them. Like, no, we want to have, you know, triple A brands that are sponsoring us. But those uh, uh, people, the entrepreneurs of, of, you know, the Cana and such like that, they've been backing the sports ever since. They were the only ones when nobody wanted to have anything to do with kickboxing or MMA. That sure. were the people who were there. And I think you should also be grateful for that. Uh, you know, they, they bought tickets, they bought tables, they threw $500 at a sponsorship. Yeah. yeah, they did. You know, they backed fighters as well. I mean, if, if you look at... Uh, they never did me. <laughs> but, uh, because I was a well, girl the, and I was doing yeah, the, yeah, Hank DeVries from the Bulldog Hash Shop in, in Amsterdam. He was a major contributor to the local mixed martial arts scene in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, there's you say what you want about the guy. He he allowed the sport to grow and thrive. Exactly, that's my point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally. So the, you the, get the, the call, so the, November seventh, two thousand nine. You 
I was just going to joke that the proper end to the Netflix film is Bob Schreiber ends as Dutch president. <laughs> <laughs> I would vote for Bob. You know, yeah, <laughs> vote for Bob, everybody, please. So let me let me just kind of set the table. Here we go. Uh, November 7, 2009, Strike Force. You get a rematch, like you had mentioned earlier, against Roxanne Matafari. You know, right out of the gate, Strike Force obviously is building people. Usually, a fight like that, you kind of want to go, you know, put down the line. How difficult was it for you to to get that fight right off the bat? Uh, no, I was so uh, so fired up, and I so wanted to make my point, and I know I knew also how big it was to to do it right because before that I had also signed with Elite XC, and I was supposed to, supposed to fight um, um, Gina Carano, but then they went bankrupt. Um, and I think also affliction, maybe that they were also talked with that and then Josh Burnett uh, kind of folded over the whole thing. So it was, I think, my third uh, attempt to finally make a debut in the States because the Japanese market went down and, you know, America was... Uh, the Yakuza. The Yakuza yeah. got exposed. <laughs> yeah. mm. Probably. Yeah. And... Um, uh, so I knew it was a big thing, but I also was still pissed about that fight in Japan. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get you. So that, that was my fuel. And and like I said, I was a really intuitive fighter. So I I, I didn't think things much uh, things much through. Uh, but I was, I was in such a state. I was so focused that I really, my instincts and all, they were really sharp. And in the fight, I was very, I knew everything. But when the fight was over, I didn't know anything about the fight anymore. So that's why it's so hard for me to talk about the fights that you're talking about because that's how basically every fight went. Then I had to watch it back to see what had happened. <laughs> so you won by armbar one minute, five seconds into the first round. And at this point, Roxanne Matafari, I mean, she's probably like the top woman in the country in regards to uh, you know name value. Yeah, but to me, I already knew that I was way, way better than her because uh, I fought her when I was really, really tired, you know, and then this time I was also tired, but it, I, it was a little bit better. Uh, so to me, before going into that fight, I was nervous. I was always nervous, but there was a knowing deep inside, like, yeah, I'm going to handle this. Well, yeah, the thing about that fight is you have two very experienced women. You had Roxanne Matafari at 13 and four, and your record at the time is 16 and three. Like you, you could argue that this was a world title fight without a belt being on the line. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, but who would you have said would have been a world title fight then? But it was at one forty-five, huh? And they had Gina right then, and I think she would just got crushed by uh, Cyborg. It was before that. I know it was. Yeah, but Cyborg at that time, no, Cyborg, yet. she wasn't established yet. No, and um, she didn't. Have she didn't get established until after your fight, in my opinion. Ah, oh, yeah, no, nah, nah. The way she beat up Gina, come on. I still have that 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 picture. If you say there's a picture in mind, and I see Gina like this, and I see so the hand of Cyborg, and the Cyborg behind her like this. No, that was that was the end of her career. Yeah. So, so they put a lot behind Gina to have it come crashing down that way. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, here, let's, let's, let, let's, let's properly frame this so people at home can kind of understand. So you win with Ra Raxan Matafari and you take, you know, if you, well, no, you fight January 30th, 2010, you're in Miami, 
and they put you up against, um, you know, Christine Cyborg, who's eight and one. And uh, man, I, I tell you, Cyborg <laughs> up until this time, other than her first fight, which was a loss, if you watch her bouts, it's almost like a bulldozer against a whole bunch of small little Toyota cars. Yeah. And the bulldozer is just running over. Just everybody. And it's not even close in regards to competition until oh, she meets you. In the first round, she won. Ne no. No. She, she never hit anybody more than twice <laughs> that <laughs> continued yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah, that the way she hit me, I've told this story so many times. It, it was like somebody threw rocks at me, for real. That's how it felt. And after the fight, I, I told myself, like even yesterday, like this, I miss a part of this knuckle, and that's from the cyborg fight. <laughs> I heard it, yeah, and the only thing she did was this. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> And uh, after this fight, I said uh, to myself, like, if I'm fighting her next, then Ruma, my partner, has to hit me with all the strength that he has, all his power. I don't know if it's hard enough. It was so extremely hard. I've never been hit that hard in my life. Even the second time that I fought her, she wasn't hitting as hard as she was in the first time. That was crazy. Really. Well, she's eight and one with six KOs. Um, I think the bouts that went to decision, they were really early in her career. They don't really count. They kind of played with the time. I watched them just to kind of, you know, kind of understand it. A lot of them were, were pancreas rules as well. You're 17 and two, three knockouts, 12 submissions. You're also an Abu Dhabi champion. Um, this is kind of, I, I know you guys say Gina Carano, but in my opinion, like Gina Carano was you know, a lot of media and stuff like that. She's obviously a beautiful woman. I think that really helped in regards to her marketing, but in regards to, you know, tried opponents that have, you know, been through the ringer, I think this is, you know, her first fight. Would you agree with that, Miguel? No, I'm, I, I think Marlos is completely underrated at this point. You know, at, at 17 and two, everything that we've talked about, legitimate stuff, coming up and, and her mindset of coming to America and come to a big show. It, it gets, it, she's the number one girl in the world. It's, it's, Absolutely. It's, Thank you. For, there for you go, That's the, We're not going to argue with you about this. I, I, you I do, were number I, one. I, I do want to ask one question too, because now you come to America and there's some Dutch people on that show with strike force with you. There's like Gegard Musasi's there. Love um, him. And then, then Fedor, probably had a lot of Russian ties. He was on that show as well. Did you interact with them? Was that your locker room? Were you in the locker room with Fedor? No, 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 no. We all had our own locker room. Oh, okay. Fedor has his own locker room. Okay. Everyone, okay. When, you, when you're on the main card, you have your own locker room. Nice. So let's, hold up. Let's, let's go back to the original question. Bring us through the cyborg, how you guys got that, how that fight landed. Uh, I remember that I was in the train. I don't know. I was go. Oh, I was going to a doctor somewhere, wherever. And then my trainer called me if I wanted to fight this Brazilian girl. But I was the stand-in for the fight with um, Gina and Cyborg because they both didn't make weight often. So they flew me in to cu to cut weight. So if one of them couldn't make the weight, I would fight. So I was. Uh, sitting in the in the venue when they were when she was crushing uh, Gina, so <laughs> I saw firsthand what she could do, and then later on I got the call when I was in the train on my way to a doctor, 
And uh, my ego and my pride just said, yes, let's go. And that's how it happened. And, um, but what I took from that fight, someone later on, a strength and cardio trainer had watched the fight. He said, you got outpowered. And that's basically what happened. I don't think she was more technical than I was at the time. No. But she was so strong. Well, well you threw sharp elbows breaking from the clinch. You conserved your energy. And I think unlike most people up until this time, mentally you were not afraid of her going into the fight. No, no, not at all. I didn't realize how strong she was. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. Until she hit think- me. Then I was like, oh my God, this is really, really, this is a little bit too hard. But then I would never give up. So I had, you know, that was just my mindset. <laughs> but oh, she hit so hard, believe me. Yeah, so Not you weren't to, to, intimidated but, but ask, at all going. No, you weren't intimidated at all going into this fight. Then, no, but I was nervous because I was always nervous. I was always doubting myself. I was always afraid that I would have a seizure and stuff. I was more busy with myself and that I wouldn't be good enough than being knocked out or whatever. So, even if I was fighting a, a mosquito, I would have still been nervous. It doesn't matter. It didn't matter. Now, let, let me jump in. I want to ask you. As you said, you know, you've had a tough road with your career and, you know, not getting a lot of attention and things. I think Cyborg is a girl who also had, at points, a tough road in her career. For sure. But, but at this point, you got to be thinking, is she on steroids? Like, what, what, what are your thoughts on that and competing with somebody who might have been on steroids and all that? Well, I, I thought she was on steroids before I went into that fight, but I thought, ah, steroids, nah. <laughs> won't hurt me (laughs) well it did yeah so when she was caught later on i wasn't surprised i mean i had seen her pictures i had seen her fights so i had my suspicions and then there wasn't go ahead i i love cyborg she's one of the sweetest uh, people i've met i respect her yeah yeah and she's uh, genuinely sweet and, and americans tend to think oh you know steroids cheaters but like i think other cultures have a different way of thinking that didn't affect you that she you didn't think she was a cheater it didn't make you want to do it like no what is your I, mindset I, I, on steroids no i didn't want to do it because i think you you will burn the candle on both sides it, in the end if you're like look at arnold schwarzenegger and you know it will hurt your body in the end but if if you lose this is the first time when i that i've spoken about roxanne modafferi and about normally i don't speak about it because i think that if you if you lose you need to suck it up don't complain so that's why i never speak out about you know about cyborg and stuff like that because then it will only make you like a sore loser but you guys you're really you've done really dived into my career so that's what i'm telling now but it's actually the first time that i'm doing this Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's because you are so you you really have gone through it, and other people are just want to have a quick quick quote, and and I'm not going to do that because it will. No, that. you know, Marlos, we we started this with the intent of documenting history, and when you listen to people do interviews, it's 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 not an interview; it's a conversation. It's they say a name and they give you the microphone. Now entertain me. But there's no substance behind it. Like, if you're going to interview somebody, people will brag, hey, I did an interview with no notes. Well, how are we supposed to respect that? 
Like, I, I don't respect that. Marlo, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, if you don't have notes, you're not prepared. You can't do an interview. It's not an interview. It's a conversation. You hung out with somebody and it's, it's not real. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our goal is to kind of document history, make sure it's at least there for your children, your grandchildren. Hopefully it never goes away. And if just one person, you know, enjoys it, then, then we, we did our job. That's it. You know, that's, that's our job. You guys. No, but yeah. it's, I feel that you're really, you know, you're truly passionate about it. Of and you, course. From the things you know and ask me, I know that you have really put the work into it. So that it makes me open, opens me up as well. Yeah. But normally, I think it, I will look really bad if I'm going to say things about, about people that have beaten me in fight, in competition. But there's also a side of the story that needs to be told. And your hand isn't going to be raised every single time. It's it is what it is. Yeah, true, true. Yeah, I, so, I had to learn that as well because I was winning so easily that you get a certain mindset. So the losses that I've had in my careers were very liberating and uh, they diminished my ego a bit, you know? And I think mm-hmm. as a fighter, you need to have a big ego to uh, from all the attacks of yeah. the outside world. But when you quit fighting, that ego needs to dissolve and needs to leave. And, uh, and that's how you also have to look at your career back, you know? So you also dealt with Miguel with Abu Dhabi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry, what did you say? With ADCC, you and Miguel, Kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you mind yeah, talking to us? You're, you're an Abu Dhabi champion. Why don't you walk us through your experience with ADCC? Oh, I remember that many years before uh, I was invited by Miguel to be, uh, you know, what the pioneers that were of women that were invited for the first time to compete in ADCC. I had heard the stories about Remco Pardu going to Abu Dhabi and it was a big Disneyland and you get watches and I was a chike and whatever. And I was like, I want to go there too. But of <laughs> course, women weren't allowed. So then we had, I think, 9-11 and because of that, it went to America. That's what I have assumed. I don't know if that's true. Uh, and then my trainer couldn't uh, come because uh, something with his company went wrong. And then my Ron Nickvist had asked um, Bas Rutten to coach me. And I've had met uh, Bas in the Netherlands a few times, but I had no idea how popular he was in, in the States until I was in California in LA and he couldn't even walk one, oh, I said meter, that's a metric system. I don't know, mm-hmm. a few feet, <laughs> whatever. Three and a half feet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and everybody wanted to get his autograph and on a picture with him. And uh, it was crazy. Then I realized how popular he was. And then he took all the time out of his day to come to the event and coach me for two days. And he even drove us around so we could do a little bit of sightseeing in LA. And he was teaching me techniques in the hotel, in the corridor. And it was wonderful. And it was wonderful to be at such a big event at a world championship that had so much grandeur. Is it English? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And um, and see all these athletes competing. And ah, it was it was like, to me, it was mind blowing to be there and to be, uh, to be invited and be a part of that wonderful event yeah and that's how i know miguel thank you thank you very much i i remember the women always in that event always came with that chip on it like they were groundbreaking like there was something new and stuff um talk about your competition that year like who you fought in the tournament and stuff because 
At least you're in your weight class. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, That's so what I also I had two times in my life a knee injury and it was both uh, at the ADCC uh, competition. So weird, like, <laughs> and uh, I had to face the uh, Australian girl and I think I lost. And what I've learned from that is that I loved wrestling. I started to learn how to wrestle a bit and I fell completely in love with wrestling. But with ADCC, when you took someone down, actually the fight just started. And that's what I needed to learn there. You know, I hate people who jump guard. I did it myself too in a second fight with Cyborg. <laughs> I didn't know what to do anymore. And a lot of people <laughs> jump guard because they couldn't wrestle. And that's what you always see. And in, in, in a lot of times you see that in grappling and especially in BJJ, of course. And, um, but I loved it. It was a wonderful competition. And then the second time it was in Philadelphia. I remember we got mm -hmm. so drunk. That's what I remember. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I became third then and there was also a girl that wanted to transition to a man and that's what I also remember mm -hmm. and I knew that I, I threw her I grabbed her neck and I put my arm in her neck and I threw her over me I don't know how to throw his pole but um and I remember I ended up between her legs but she was at the end of her transition so she was using testosterone and I remember that I was in her guard and I looked at her legs and there were all these male hairs on the on our upper legs and I was like oh what the <laughs> fuck is this so that completely threw me off my game and uh I think I've lost that one and then the act that one after I won and it was against uh a, uh, a Japanese she shoot and I did her I don't know out of uh instinct I, I think I did a weird Uh, submission because later on someone came to me she said yeah I'm a black belt under this blah 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 and what kind of technique did you do because we don't know that technique and I was like I don't know I don't know shit what I did but <laughs> <laughs> again so I became third and I remember that one um, uh, I don't know who became first and then the, the, the girl that wanted to transition to a man she didn't show up because she was second and I was third and then my heart broke for her On the one side, like she felt so, yeah, I'm, I'm, should, I'm not supposed to be here, so I'm not picking up my trophy. And on the other hand, I was like, hey, if you want to become a dude and you're already at the end of your transition and you're on testosterone and you have hair on your legs like male half, then you should compete with the guys. That's what I know from ADCC Philadelphia and uh, the after party was really good. Yeah, Trent, New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay, well, here, I, we're done with your fight career. Obviously, we're going to revisit you after we, we're going to do like 100 podcasts with people getting <laughs> fighters to a certain point in their career. And then after 100, we're going to revisit and do oh, cool. the other half of their career. One more question in regards to the Netherlands, which well, is absolutely fascinating. Did you have any relationship with Don Plas, who is head of rings from the Netherlands? I never heard his name. Dan he died in prison. Yeah, Dan Plas. He's an old school guy. Mm -hmm. and oh, oh, wait, wait. Jan Plas. I thought you said D-A-A-N, but you mean G-A-N. You know, I, I, yeah. Plas, I knew was his last name, and I saw multiple yeah, spellings. Yeah, I know he's, 
He's he's a legend. I have never met him, but uh, I I know the stories about him. Yeah. Could you give us one, just so the American people or can they, actually Australians are almost neck and neck with Americans in terms of our viewers. If you could give us just a little bit of information on this gentleman. Well, what I know is that, okay, I'm probably telling this wrong. You should talk with someone who is more into it. But a story that I have heard is that he was somewhere in the States or outside of the Netherlands for sure. And that he had so much money of, of, criminal stuff in his house that he was sitting on it like he was one of the big what did you actually find him it's a common bekend fout wait i'm getting some intel what say you yeah okay uh but he ill robbery we have a live fact checker okay yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. <laughs> we're good with this <laughs> Come here, let it out. No, no, come on in. Yeah, do some yeah, fascinating stuff. Marlos, here's the thing. We don't know these things. Like I have, I am a little OCD and I have some mental issues in regards to like finding information. I spent hours trying to find stories on him and I couldn't even get his first name right because there's so little information yet the stories and history involving him are plentiful, but it's only by word of mouth and nothing documented. Yeah, so what Would you mind introducing this gentleman? Hello. This is my partner, Hello. Thank you. He was also training me uh, at a lot of part of my career. Good, good. Would, would you mind telling us about that? Uh, Gan Plus, I think his Jan name was. Jan Plus, uh, he's one of the, the uh, founders of uh, uh, Dutch kickboxing. And you, have, you had a few gyms in Amsterdam. Fosch uh, Gym, Giro Gym, Chakuriki. Um, and he was one of the, the leaders of Giro Gym, I thought. Yeah. Jan Plus. Uh, so there was always a kickboxing uh, competition uh, because they were from karate. They went to Thailand and they uh, went back to the Netherlands again, and they make their own system. It was uh, a kickboxing system because- uh, He's the one of the founding fathers one. of kickboxing, but what yes. is it? they're not interested in that. What is this? Oh, activity. That's oh, what thank you. <laughs> Nothing sportsmanship. I, I don't know that much uh, about his criminal uh, activities. I do know a lot of, uh, no, not a lot. I do know some uh, stuff uh, about the these schools, kickboxing uh, schools, yeah. skyboxing schools. They uh, ruled a little bit Amsterdam, and also uh, the yeah, like the red district to make yeah, sure. Right. Hmm? So they handled the security for the red light district. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Stuff like, but also like drug trading and stuff like that. That's what ecstasy in particular. Drug trader, young plus. That's yeah. what I've heard. I've never met him. Yeah, he died in prison. Yeah, yeah and, and I do think uh, they went into prison because of uh, uh, a robbery, and they call it the the eel, eel robbery. It was like a fish. Okay, the eel. We eat it a lot in the Netherlands. Yeah, and it's uh, really expensive. So that's the, the oh, only. For real? It was a robbery on eels? <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, so, yeah. Oh. I heard it. So, so it's. Uh, they got busted. 
They got busted, yeah. And he's like the Lee Murray of fish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've got really cool something. stories for you, but we don't know shit about actually. No, what no, no. So this, this is just a story where they uh, heard, next so. time I've got more intel yeah. for you on Young Plus. Marlos, we I have got Bob Schreiber broken down, and we're just gonna wait until he kind of gets very comfortable, and then we're hit. I've got names and dates and i'm just you know i just want to get a reaction but he, he doesn't knows, know how to work he zoom knows he knows everything yeah he knows he knows way better than me how uh yeah he can tell you a lot of stories yeah he, he's been in japan cornering people that were killed like a few weeks later yeah no no that was uh, hans neiman yeah yeah we, we're trying to get him we're trying yeah, to get him he's oh he's a wonderful guy so but, let's talk about yeah. Rutten. um i, I go even, again thank you sir Bye -bye. Thank, you. Thank you. Even in the early, and I'm done after this, Miguel. So even in the early days of Dutch mixed martial arts, he was doing commentary. With Mauro Anello. Yeah. He's, he was almost like born into the commentary chair. How, how does he get there so fast? Uh, well, he was doing commentary for Pride, I think. So I think that that went from America that he was asked to do that. But probably, if, if you ask me, he already fought a lot in Japan. And I, you have the story that he has the L and the R on his hands in Pancrase because he was so he got so nervous that he, he forgot what was left and right. So I think mm -hmm. it was his connection in Japan that they asked him to uh, to do that. I mean, come on, if you if you meet him once, he's such an entertaining guy. There's hardly anyone that I know that's so that's so entertaining. Charismatic. Hmm? He's very charismatic. Yeah, and he I mean like what he did from okay, one time, okay, then I'll quit also. So <laughs> he did a uh, he was in the Netherlands and a uh, big jet lag, and he did uh in my gym in, in the east of the Netherlands uh, a clinic. But I was living already in Amsterdam, so uh, I drove back with him and his uh, ex-manager. Uh, and I said, oh, Homer, the guy you just saw, would love to meet you. But he was really, really tired. I'm, a, I'm ashamed that I asked him by, at this point in time. But um, that what he did, and, and the cell phones, I don't know, something went wrong. And this is many years ago. So end of the story is that Bas Rutten was sitting in my, uh, uh, in my room, in my house, drinking a special beer waiting for Rumer to come back so, so he could greet Rumer. I mean, that's the kind of a guy that Bas Rutten is. I mean, love him to death. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And no, then he had a, a big jet lag, yeah? And he was exhausted. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Marlos, you know, we, we've had you over an hour and a half. Thank you so much. Thank you, too. We, we absolutely reserve the right to have you back for the rest of your career. <laughs> you have. Yeah. But, but uh, you're a true legend. You're a true legend. Like your 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 fight against Cyborg, I, I it was it was heroic. Your efforts, heroic, and you know it was kind of like you're fighting a giant, and you know the David and Goliath, and you were David, and you just you had no fear. And like as a as a fight fan watching that, like it's it was very emotional for me as a fan to watch something like oh, that take wow. place. So thank, thank you. you. And I I think another. I, I think another feather in your cap too is that you really are almost you cover almost two generations because yes. the stuff in Japan you're doing like real no holes barred no rule you know less rules no weight classes and you you emerge number one and then 
in strike force, now it's real rules, gloves, weight classes, a very different sport. And you made it to the top of both, of both of them. The, definitely a pioneer and a Hall of Famer, Miguel. A Hall of Fame fighter. Thank 100%. You so yes. Every, everything you've done for us. <laughs> First ballot. Thank you. I mean, this is, it, these aren't words that I hear every day. So, and, in, and it comes from people who know, you know, that a lot of people come to me and I'm like, yeah, whatever goes one year, you know, the year out. But coming from you, yeah, it, um, it hits my heart. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you, you very much. Marlos, we'll talk to you again in the very near future. Thank you. Wow. So, Lights Out Podcast, another deep dive in the books, another historic deep dive in the books, if I might toot our own horn here. Mike, what do you yeah. think? Marlos Conan. Well, I, I think we accomplished what we set out for. And it's not like she was a tough egg to crack. Like, she's obviously very personable, well-spoken. English is not her first language. And, you know, you, you'd be kind of hard-pressed to find people in this country that speak as well as she does. <laughs> now, but let, let's, let's look at our trajectory. The majority of our audience is from the United States. So, you know, we've, we've done a real good job here in the Midwest, and we're kind of starting to branch to the coasts. We've had a couple fighters from Canada. We've had Brad Pickett from Europe. We're working on the UK guys. You know, they're, they're not real apt to come over to us. And right now, we're going to start opening up the Netherlands. You know, we tried Sweden, got shut down a couple times. It is what it is. But we're going to start trying to start targeting the Netherlands and Australia, obviously, our, our, our second largest group of people that watch this podcast. So we're, we're going to start kind of spreading things out on the international side. And if we're going to go into a new territory, you got to start with the best, at least the pioneers. So you hopefully we can get Dirty Bob Schreiber at some point, because that would be mind blowing, at least like to us. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I think this one uh, accomplishes that. It's our second female interview here on the podcast. You know, Tara LaRose, I think, is an appropriate first. So I, think I mentioned it to Merlos off camera, and she was totally cool with Tara. You know, hey, hey, say hi to her and everything like that. And she was very happy to also be the second person that was, you know, coming in on onto the woman's side here. So we're going to keep going down that path. The women's history really needs to be covered just like the men's history. And uh, that's what we'll do. So, and Miguel, you, you got to say, uh, you also got to kind of look at it this way. When Marlos Conan lost to, uh, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. She fought for you a couple of times. For me? My, <sighs> Roxanne? Roxanne. Which I, thought, I don't know how many of the brains are there. When Marlos Conan lost to Roxanne, Roxanne, we had discussed this. We said, wait a minute. That looks like a world title fight. And when, then when Tara beats Roxanne, that's when we said, that's it. That is like, if you were to put a start date on a woman's world title, even though a strap may have not been wrapped around their waist, it was between the three of those. You could argue Marlo's, Marlo's Roxanne, Roxanne, Tara, and then it kind of, you know, goes from there. Um, she's absolutely a pioneer in women's mixed martial art history. And man, it's, it's a feather in our cap, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and I think if, you know, for the fan, if you go back and watch her fights, like she's heroic. More she, she's more technical than any of the Dutch fighters that, that we're going to be accustomed to. Like any of those guys, like Ivel, yeah, Overeem got technical there later on in his career, but they were all striker based, and this girl was a whiz on the ground. So it's a, it, this was an interview that 
I had a lot of fun doing and uh, I'm grateful for. So uh, I'm going to cap the night off with a fantasy version of Lights Out Bourbon. I don't drink anymore, but I'm going to have, have a Here nightcap. You know, Miguel, Lights I think you're sober. Too. You're sober too. Yeah, I'm sober. So uh, I'm going to, I'm pushing. you cook Chris. it first. I'm, Get I'm the pushing. alcohol out. Yeah, I want, yeah, I want Chris to put out like a, what, an O'Doul's version, you know, <laughs> <laughs> of whiskey. But um, Khan's Fine Wines in uh, .com in uh, Indiana shipping across the country. And uh, Chris's bourbon's knocking it out of the park, so I recommend it. And uh, Mike's got some jujitsu stuff for us. Okay, here we go. All right, so Diamond Sportsbook. Here, I, I shouldn't even say that. BetDSI.eu. Ladies and gentlemen, please throw a couple dollars on there. They will match 50% up to $1,000 deposited. And you can bet on lots of sports. Gambling is an addiction, but it's an addiction that you can win lots of money at. Just want to kind of point that out. Um, I've got February 5th, Tampa, Florida. If you guys like ground karate, you're into jujitsu, please sign up to our jujitsu tournament, world-class grappling on Smooth Comp. December 17th, I am at in Chicago. Uh, there's a bar called 115 Bourbon Street, Ignite FC. Uh, December 17th, I am doing a color commentary. Please stop by, say hello. We're going to be doing T-shirts and stuff like that very soon. Um, you know, for people that comment on our YouTube page, as well as leave reviews on iTunes, it'd be awesome if you guys could get ahead, like, share, subscribe. If we don't tell you that, no one will do it. And we appreciate everybody that's listening. Especially if you're still listening now. Yeah, right. And, uh, if you're listening now, you owe us. You owe us one. <laughs> that's it. Hell of, we've given you a hell of a podcast here. So Absolutely. with that, we'll be back with another deep dive. Thank you, folks. Check out the full interview on iTunes, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms.